Welcome back to Not Another Science Podcast. I'm Tom. And I'm Helena. For the third episode of the series, we are speaking to Dr. Fabio Nudelman, a senior lecturer and researcher from the School of Chemistry here at the university. His research focuses on biomineralization, the process by which organisms make minerals for protection, navigation, structural support, and many more uses. His research involves lots of long, complicated names that Tom and I both struggle with, so please bear with us. Now that you're forewarned, here we go! Before we start, this podcast is sponsored by GrinoBio One, supplying laboratory, diagnostic and medical products to research institutions, higher education, the NHS and others across the UK. For details of the full product range, visit www.gbo.com. And now, on with the show! First of all, Fabio, thank you for joining us. Really appreciate you giving us your time. Could you introduce yourself, tell us who you are and what do you do? Yeah, so my name is Fabio Nudeman. I'm originally from Brazil. I'm a scientist. I'm working at the School of Chemistry at the University of Edinburgh. From our research on you, we saw that you work on biomineral... I'm going to not say this right. Biomineralization. Um, could you tell us what that is? I mean, I got into this field when I started my PhD. And uh, I, I always feel that it's a little bit mysterious to, to people. I, I mean, the name is, is you know, it's, it's a long name and uh, people don't usually come across. But uh, in a way, I mean, what, what to do is try to understand how organisms make all kinds of hard materials. And that includes things like bone, teeth, shells, you know, coral skeletons for another example, sea urchin spines. You know, all, all these are, are materials that they contain the mineral part. Uh, in the case of our uh, bones and teeth, it's, it's calcium phosphate. In seashells, it's calcium carbonate. And then they have, uh, let's say, an organic part, which is basically the, the biological molecules, the macromolecules that, that are in their proteins, sugars, and, and, and so on. So we, we try to understand how organisms make the, these tissues. We try to understand how the material properties are different from what you'd get from, for example, uh, non-biological calcium carbonate, like chalk. The, their functions, uh, how they are optimized for functions, you know, what, what makes bone so efficient at uh, supporting the weights of our bodies, for example, or a sea, sea urchin spine so sharp and, and pointy and, and, and painful to, to step on. <laughs> so obviously the, the minerals that, that the animals create is different to the ones that you just find out in the world. What kind of determines the minerals that an animal uses and how they, how they make that mineral? We can talk about two different processes. One is, is what people have classified as biologically induced mineralization, the other is biologically controlled. And the difference is, is that in, in the case of biologically induced mineralization, what an organism is doing is that it's just throwing mineral outside, to the outside. And uh, that is going to precipitate uh, according to the conditions in the environment. So essentially the organism has absolutely no control about what material it's creating uh, outside. Biologically controlled mineralization, it's what you normally have, uh, formation of bone, teeth, and, and all that. And this is pretty much controlled by the cells that make the minerals. So let's say they have all the information there that tells them what kind of uh, ions they need, what kind of minerals they're going to use, and uh, how all that formation process is, is going to be controlled. So uh, you, you can even say go as far as saying that it, in a way it's genetically controlled. On what, what, what cells are going to do, it's pretty much written in, in, their, in their genome already. During our research, we, we came across some kind of some wacky uses of biominerals. I wonder if you could talk us through that and uh, whether you had any kind of like favorite examples of crazy mineral use. 
Uh, that, that, that's really interesting because if, if you look at what organisms can do, I mean, you find uh, that there are more than 60 different types of minerals that are used for all, all kinds of things. So I find really cool, for example, some very tiny mollusks that they have teeth made of iron oxide, so magnetite that they use to grind rocks. And it's made in a way that the teeth are built in a kind of a conveyor belt kind of system. So, you know, they're eating the rocks, the teeth are worn out and then they fall off and then are immediately replaced by new teeth. So, so that is, is one nice example. Another one that that also like is uh, plants that have calcium carbonate or calcium oxalate crystals inside that they use to scatter light that helps with photosynthesis. So th that's using minerals as uh, lenses in a way. And if, if you know about trilobites, which are all these ve very old animals that already went extinct a very long time ago, they had eyes that were also made of, of calcium carbonate of calcite. So it, it's like you're using a mineral and make it into a lens to, as, as a very primitive kind of a light sensing uh, system. And some uh, extant animals do the same thing, brittle stars, they have uh, their skeleton made of calcium carbonate that it's also in the form of lenses so that they can focus the light on a nerve passing. So, uh, I mean, the uses that, that you find are, are really, you know, it's, it's kind of all, all over the place. The bacteria that use uh, magnetic fields to navigate. Oh, yes, that's really cool. Oh, yeah, that, was, that blew my mind. So I don't know if you could just tell us a bit about that. These are called magnetotactic bacteria because they sense the magnetic field. They have all these tiny crystals inside that are aligned as kind of a string uh, in many cells. And it, it's fixed to the cell so that basically forces the cell to, to rotate and aligns in the direction of the magnetic field. And what, what is interesting is that for many species, the ones living in the northern hemisphere, they tend to swim along the, you know, the north magnetic pole. The ones in the southern hemisphere tend to swim towards the south uh, hemisphere, uh, magnetic pole. So they have this kind of a directionality. It, it can switch in, in some cases, but they are pretty much restricted to navigating along the magnetic field uh, of, of, of the Earth. So, so it's different from a bacteria like E. coli that has all this tumble uh, motion. So that they swim maybe in a more ordered way. And uh, it, it's cool because you can see videos of people with magnets ju just controlling how they swim just using a magnetic field. I think that the advantage for them is that it helps them to swim within an oxygen gradient because they live in water and they prefer an oxygen environment, so low oxygen concentrations. So it helps them to, to, find, to navigate through the water column to find the right oxygen level. So in some ways it can control the direction that their flagella, which is a kind of a propeller that they have, whether it's going to turn one one way or or another way. Amazing! That's incredible. <laughs> that is so cool. <laughs> but you're currently studying coccolithophores. Ah, again with the words coccolithophores. Is that yeah. correct? <laughs> um, could you tell us why you chose this specific animal? Yes. Yes. Well, sorry, man. I, I didn't make up these words. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I, I mean. Uh, Coagulitophores, they, they are called phytoplankton, so they, they are very tiny organisms, they are single cells, and they are covered by scales that are made of calcium carbonate, so here we go talking about chalk again. But what, what I found really interesting is when you look at, at the picture of, of these uh, organisms, what, what you see is scales that they look like those very old wheels, uh, chariot wheels that have like spokes going from the center to the outside. And each one of these spokes is, is one separate crystal, so one separate unit. 
and everything is made inside the cell so you, you can think of uh, you know the cell kind of assembling these spokes pretty much like a Lego to make a scale and that's pretty much what fascinated me when I uh, st uh, before I started looking to these and made me think like wow I have to to see what they're, how they're doing this uh, because yeah. it, it's really it's really interesting and uh, and it, it, it's also I mean, an, another fascinating point there is, is that if you look at different species of coccolithophores, they make scales of different shapes, different sizes, which is species specific. And that just points how, how precisely they can control all that mineralization process and making, you know, completely different shapes and, and sizes. How much, how much do we know about how... Uh, organisms like coccolithophores. Uh, I, I struggled. <laughs> <laughs> That's just me. <laughs> this is going to be the whole podcast, just us tripping over words. How, how much do we know about how they kind of assemble these structures? What happens is that they have a special compartment inside the cell. And I like that it's called coccolith vesicle. And in, in a way, the principles uh, apply to almost any kind of biomineral, as, as we like to, to call uh, these materials, in that you, you need to have some substrate, right? I mean, we're growing, growing crystals, they have to grow on something. So th there isn't a kind of a, a substrate in, in there. And this substrate has to have specific chemistry on the surface that is going to promote the formation of the crystals. Uh, so that we already know a little bit more about this today than we knew even five years ago. And, and then once nucleation starts, and then we know, now know that uh, we have very tiny crystals that are growing at the same time on, on the substrate, forming kind of a ring. And then it, it's about controlling how they grow uh, in different directions to make all those interesting shapes. So pretty much once you have a ring of crystals, as they grow, they kind of mechanically interlock because they cannot grow in any direction that the crystal wants. I mean, if you, if you have a crystal sitting next to it, uh, it, it cannot grow towards its neighbor, right? The growth in that direction is blocked. So it's going to grow around it. And then the, the other one is also growing around it. So you end up creating a structure that is mechanically interlocked and it's stable. So that, that's how nature does it. I mean, at least with coccolithophores, that's, uh, that's what it is. And then, and then in the process, we have all kinds of macromolecules like polysaccharides that, uh, or help to, that help to shape the crystals as, as they grow. Uh, they help to modulate, you know, they have to deliver calcium ions in there, carbonate ions. Uh, so all that is, is controlled uh, by the cells. We, in, in the field, we do a lot of electromicroscopy, and that's something that I really like because it, it's very visual, right? I mean, instead of analyzing a, a spectra, you know, you're just looking at a picture and, you know, you see things, and I, I find it really exciting. So that, that, that is one of the main techniques that we use. So, for example, we can try to image inside the cells. Uh, nowadays, there are techniques for that so that we can try to see the crystals, for example, as they grow and as they develop. And then you get an image uh, of how you go from a ring of very tiny crystals to a structure that is actually very complex. And that gives you a picture of what's happening in there. We can combine that with spectroscopy, for example, that gives a kind of a chemical analysis. So we can try to understand how is the environment of the mineral in there. If the mineral is crystalline, if it's, uh, if it's uh, not crystalline, if it's disordered presence of uh, other macromolecules and, and so on. So these are, all, are the main techniques. One question that I had was, so if you're studying this in this, in this organism, how similar is that formation to different organisms? Like, is it comparable or do different organisms have different ways of, of making biominerals? 
So we have a number of basic principles that are going to be the same. And that I think doesn't matter too much which organism it is. Right? So, so th th think that an organism now doesn't matter what it is. It's precipitating, it's, it's creating a mineralized structure that is going to have very well-defined composition, a very well-defined shape. And so it, it cannot create those in an open environment that, you know, it, where it can have other kinds of ions and molecules coming in. So it has to do that in some kind of enclosed space where it can control the conditions inside very, very carefully. So org all organisms use this kind of strategy. And some of them, like coccolithophores, are going to do that inside the cell. Others are going to do outside the cell. So if you look at bone formation, we have collagen, which is the main protein of bone. It's also present in, in skin. And so bone formation happens outside the bone forming cells. But you, you still have the same principle that you have this confined environment. Then the same thing as the use of templates uh, or some kind of organic templates that are going to pretty much direct how the crystal is going to nucleate, how it's going to grow. So th these are themes that are going to be common and they repeat themselves. The details of the process, that is going to be pretty much species specific, which molecules are, are acting there, what they're going to do, the sequence of, of growth uh, and, and so on. Climate change is, is something that is interesting a lot of kind of chemists at the moment because you have this relationship between ocean acidification and um, kind of the calcium carbonate that a lot of organisms use in their shells and things like that. How likely are organisms like coccolithophores to be affected by climate change? It is a good question. I mean, climate change is, is an issue. I mean, we're talking about especially marine organisms, they, they you know, uh, ocean acidification. You're going to change the conditions of the seawater they're living in. And that is going to have, it does have an effect. Uh, there, there is a lot of research uh, trying to understand what kind of effect it, it's going to have. And I think it varies a lot from organism to organism, but it can affect uh, processes like calcification uh, would tend to be inhibited if you decrease the pH of seawater. And for some organisms, that's going to be bad news because they may depend on calcification to survive. It may, it's going to affect all other processes as well. So it could, uh, in the case of coccolithophores, it could actually enhance biomass production, which means that they may thrive, uh, you know, they may be able to produce more energy from photosynthesis. But then again, there are some species that depend on calcification. So, you know, it's, it's going to be a balance there. It's a question of how organisms can, can adapt, how fast these changes are going to occur if, and if organisms have the chance to, to adapt. Another branch of your research is biomimetism, if I'm correct. Why would we want to recreate biominerals? What, what would be the uses for them? It's about learning how nature can control the material properties of all kinds of uh, minerals and, and then trying to mimic those for materials that we may want. Another advantage is, is that, of course, organisms, they don't have any, any choice. They have to, to make uh, precipitate minerals or whatever they're making under relatively mild synthesis conditions, right? I mean, it's happening inside a cell. So you're talking about uh, aqueous conditions, pH that is physiological. And that's quite different from uh, synthesis methods that, you know, have to put high pressure, high, high temperature, uh, you create lots of waste, so a high carbon footprint. So that is, is another reason why it's useful to learn uh, how organisms do things so that we can try to mimic uh, those principles. And in terms of applications, I mean, if we understand the composition of bone and how our bodies make bone, we can try to think about strategies that could be used to create a new bone replacement material. Uh, that would be better than the current titanium implants 
or find ways that can help us to regenerate uh, carious lesions in, in the teeth that is different from just adding a, a resin in there to, to cover the hole. So uh, the, the, these are the, the ideas, I mean, the motivations behind it. What are the biggest challenges that you face when trying to recreate these biominerals in the lab? One of the biggest challenges that I, I, I find is to scale it up. You know, if, if you want to, to create a new type of body armor based on biomineral, you have to scale that up in, in a way. Uh, and I think that that, that is, is very hard to do, right? Or you can exploit that there are uh, animals that have produced glass speakers that have uh, fiber optic properties. So if you want to try to, rep to recreate those, it, it, it's again, how do you scale it up to, to, so that, you know, companies can use it? Where is the state of the research at the moment? Have we been able to recreate some of these materials or is it very, still very early beginnings? There are many things that we can do. We can uh, recreate the basic structure of bone in the lab. The mother of pearl, that, you know, of mollusks, that structure can be recreated as well. Uh, I think it's again the question of how do you scale that up uh, or how do you start using these materials? I haven't seen actual users, uh, I mean, actual materials, you know, commercially available. Uh, that are based on, on biominerals. I don't think that there are that many examples out of it. Some of the research that you've done kind of involves looking at materials that can change their properties depending on the environment they're in, like seashells that are flexible when underwater, but brittle when on dry land. Are these materials, is that kind of like an adaptive function of the organism, or is it kind of just some inherent property that just happens? That, that that's that's a good one. I mean, this uh, the, the material that you're mentioning. Uh, these are uh, called brachiopods. They, they look like I mean, they are seashells. They look like mollusks, but they're not mollusks. The short answer is that I I don't know why they have this property. Uh, it, it's something that I found out by chance. I got interested in these because they're made of calcium phosphate, which is similar to bone. But it's it's unusual for an invertebrate, a marine animal, to use uh, that's not a fish. To, to use calcium phosphate. Normally they use calcium carbonate. And what happened was that I gave this to a student and said, let's study this. But you know, before you do anything with it, make sure you lived in water for a while to, to, to clean it. And then she came back saying that the shell became soft. These are animals that they live, they spend quite a bit of time uh, submerged in, in seawater. Uh, I think that it may help them to, to burrow in, in the sand. At, at least it help, probably helps the, the shell to, re, to resist against a fracture when they're doing that. But I have the feeling that it's more of an inherent property rather than than an adaptive response. But that being said, uh, I had a postdoc who used to say that nature doesn't do things for fun. If if they do things, uh, it's because it gives an advantage to the to the animal. And I think that there's a very good point uh, in, in this. So this is probably quite hypothetical as well. But would that kind of property be useful for a biomimetic material to have it be adaptable depending on the environment? I think that uh, you know, you know, if you have a material that if you if you change the external conditions, and it can switch from uh, hard and brittle to something that is soft and, and flexible, I, I think that people find use for, for this kind of thing, and and from there you can extrapolate uh, to other other kind of uh, adaptations uh, or properties. I mean, if you understand how this works, then you can create a material that maybe is responsive, maybe not to water, but uh, I don't know, maybe to an electric stimulus or to some other kind of stimulus, and that makes it easier to control. This area of research, it seems like it brings in a lot of different disciplines. You've got biology, chemistry, and kind of material science. How does that make your job on a day-to-day -day basis? Do you kind of have to learn a lot of different fields? Is it quite an exciting process to undertake? So it's a, it's a really multidisciplinary area because we can look, I mean, when you look at the biomineral, 
you can look at, look at it from the material sciences perspective. So you can ask, you know, what, what are its properties, what are its optical properties or mechanical properties, and why does it have these properties? You can look at it from the biological side. So, you know, what, what is the biochemistry in there? How they're made, how the cells make these? You can look at it from the crystallographic or crystal growth perspective. You know, these are crystals. How, so how do they grow in this shape? How do they grow in this direction? So, and then you can think on the biomedical perspective, thinking, you know, how do I exploit this and, and make, uh, I don't know, a bone replacement material. So it, it does bring uh, lots of different areas together. We can't usually look, do everything at once. So we have to pick one approach at a time, uh, at least for one specific project. But uh, you do have to have a foot on the other areas because you need to have the contacts and you need to be able to understand, uh, you know, a little bit of the other areas. So it does involve learning quite, quite a bit on, on the job. And, you know, uh, even if you have background in one part, you, you have to start looking at, at least a little bit uh, in other areas, learn maybe a little bit of crystallography uh, or a little bit of material sciences. Because at the end, you, you still come across all, all these when you read papers. Because maybe I, I'm not working on mechanical properties, but I'm going to read a paper from someone who, who is doing that. And I'm going to be talking to people at conferences who, who are working that. So I need to be able to understand and it may also give me a different angle to, to look at these types of, of, of materials. So it, it's actually quite important. I mean, you have to, to learn this. And I think a lot of the learning just happens uh, as, as you do it and as you need it. So then how did you come across this? What, what, like, what's your background? What made you fall in love with this area of research? I studied biomedical sciences and that, that was back in Brazil. So, you know, that's pretty much biology. I did a master in life sciences, which is again biology, working on, on, on cell biology. But uh, after I finished my master, I kind of got bored of biology and, and I was looking for an interesting project to do a PhD. And I was looking at, yeah, at, at, I think I lost a bit of interest in, in doing pure biology and I wanted something that went a little bit more into chemistry that sounded uh, more exciting uh, and, and different. And I just, you know, I was, uh, I did my master and my PhD in, in Israel at the Weizmann Institute. So what, what I did was look, I wanted to stay there. So I was looking at what other groups were doing. And then I came across this uh, research group and I just knocked on my supervisor's door and said, look, I'm learning, looking for a PhD uh, position. I, I learned that uh, you're working this area. Can we talk about this? And uh, it, it just sounded really exciting, uh, especially the combination between chemistry and, and biology. It's something that uh, really attracted me to this area and something that I can keep going and then just drifting more and more towards chemistry as, as, as I go along. Uh, so it completely changed the direction uh, of, of my research. Is it part of the attraction, the applications that you can actually take this research and hopefully apply it to some real world things? Uh, I think that for me, it's more because I find it scientifically interesting and I like the combination of these different areas. I think that in the end, biology is chemistry. And so I find it important to have a good understanding of the chemistry that is going on in a biological system. And an area like this, the way that all those different disciplines are interlinked together, uh, it, it's one thing that I really like because it gives a di different perspective. Uh, if, even when you look at the biological problem, something that is purely biological, it already gives a different perspective when you have a, a foot in other, other disciplines. We like to ask people what their most and least favorite things about their jobs are. This could be anything from like 
it's really frustrating when I get to the lab and there's no coffee or something like that. <laughs> what's, what's something that frustrates you about your job? And what's one of your favorite things? What, what I can find can be most frustrating uh, when doing science is that, you know, you do things that they don't work and you don't always know why. And then you go and I have to do it again. And maybe it works the second time, maybe it doesn't. And sometimes it gets stuck. And uh, I think that we spend quite a lot of time trying to solve problems to uh, make... I mean, it's, it's saying that th things that don't work, I mean, in a way, uh, it sounds negative. Uh, I mean, it can be anything from an experiment that didn't work uh, because of a flaw in the design to just pursuing the wrong idea, the wrong hypothesis. But it, it can be frustrating when you hit a brick wall and you don't know why and you have to overcome it. So, so that, that, that is, I think, is a frustrating bit of science. At the same time, it can be very exciting when you manage to solve the problem and discover something new. And that is very rewarding, uh, I find. I mean, when you have that, that moment that you say, oh, now, now I understand what, what is going on there. And uh, you come up with something that actually makes sense. And all, all your data point in that direction. I think that that is, is really, really exciting. So I think that's, that's most of our questions. Eleanor, do you have any, anything else? Or? No, I think that was pretty comprehensive. Thank you so much for your time and for agreeing to be on the podcast. Okay, no problem. It was, it was a pleasure. It was really nice. Yeah, this is really interesting. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much to Fabio for volunteering to be on the show and for persisting through all our technical difficulties. If you have any questions about what you heard today, you can reach him at fabio.nudelman at ed.ac.uk. This podcast is brought to you by the Edinburgh University Science Magazine. In each episode, we'll explore fascinating themes and ideas, talk to awesome researchers about their work, and find out about the science being done by our very own staff and students here at the university. If you have any feedback for us, or if you'd like to get in touch with a question or a suggestion, you can reach us on our Facebook page, Edinburgh University Science Media, or on our Twitter, at USCI. That's at E-U-S-C-I. You can also drop us an email at usci.podcast at gmail.com and you can find the show notes and the latest issue of the magazine at usci.org.uk. If you'd like to be featured on the podcast, please get in touch and keep an eye on our social media for more information. This episode was hosted by me, Tom Edwick, and my partner in crime, Helena Cornu. The podcast manager is Alex Bailey. The podcast logo was designed by USCI chief editor, Apple Chu. And the awesome podcast episode art was designed by Heather Jones, our social media and marketing genius. The intro and outro themes are edited for music by Kevin McLeod. Thank you for listening, and until next time, keep it science.